Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, shalom, friends. Thank you so much for being here. Wonderful to be with you all today. We know others are going to be trickling in, and we have this fascinating topic today, standing out or blending in, passing versus looking Jewish in texts and today. We are here with a, a great teacher, Rabbi Sarah Moher, um, who is a rabbi, educator, and community builder. She serves as the rabbi of Silverstein-based Lincoln Park, opening her home and her heart to young adults in Chicago. I had the great privilege of visiting that center just a few months ago. Uh, it was lovely to see uh, her um, and uh, in action and that com- um, great community. She passionately believes that Torah matters and that Judaism can enrich human life and better society. Rav Sarah is also a nationally regarded Torah educator, frequently teaching in a wide variety of Jewish adult education settings, particularly on topics of ethics, gender, and Jewish practice. As a rabbi, some of her areas of focus include grief support, feminist and queer nida education, and crafting joyful halakhic egalitarian life cycle rituals. She's deeply committed to inspiring traditional prayer and is a passionate shaliach sibor. Sarah was ordained by the Rabbinical School of Hebrew College, where she also earned a master's in Jewish education and received private rabbinical ordination from Rabbi Daniel Landis. She's an alumna of Brandeis University, Yeshiva Tadar, Pardes Institute, Drisha Institute, Beit Midrash Ha'el, the Wexner Graduate Fellowship, and the David Hartman Center Fellowship. She can be reached at sarahmohern at gmail.com or at rub underscore Sarah. So um, standing out or blending in, passing versus looking, Jewish and Texan today. So Sarah, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much, Roshmoli. Um, it's really nice to see you all, some familiar faces and some new ones. Um, I'm really happy to dive into this topic, which I think is fascinating. Um, so I'll just say a little bit about how I got into this. A lot of my interest as a thinker and as a teacher is around um, Jewish law and how we can read Jewish legal texts for their underlying values and sort of social and public policy Um commitments. Um, And I'm also very interested, as we mentioned in in the bio, in places where Jewish law intersects with gender and ethics. So my uh, thinking about this topic really started with an interest in the gendered aspects, but it has since uh, developed into a full-blown obsession with all things Jewish clothing, um, and in particularly thinking about clothing as a kind of language that Jews use to communicate. Um, and to reinforce and to form their own identities as Jews and to navigate their relationships with other Jews and with non-Jews. So if you want like the full story, I have a lot to say on this topic and you'll have to join me sometime for like a semester long course. But for the purpose of our one beautiful session together, I want to focus on a particular aspect of Jewish dress, which I think is um, both especially interesting and has really big implications for how we think about community and about identity, which is how do Jews use their clothing to build and communicate their own identities and communities, and especially to draw barriers or to build connections with those outside the Jewish community. So how do we use our clothing to draw barriers or to build connections? Um, And we're going to look at that by exploring a number of Jewish legal texts um, and also some sort of non-traditional texts, um, which either encourage Jews to use their physical appearance. um, And when I'm talking about physical appearance, I don't mean their bodies, but I I mean their their clothing or sort of 
choices they're making about their appearance, most often through head coverings of various sorts. But we're also going to see some texts that deal with some less familiar things like particular kinds of haircuts or particular colors of shoes. Um, and of course, there are many examples of traditional Jewish clothing that we won't have time to explore. Um, but how are Jews using all of those tools to look intentionally distinct from non-Jewish neighbors? Um, and when they when they do that, um, why? And then similarly, when are these same kinds of Jewish texts um, either not encouraging Jews to look different or actually actively discouraging Jews from looking different? Um, and either way, what are the values underlying these choices? What are What is being communicated by having and encouraging distinct Jewish dress or by the lack thereof, right? What is the impact on the individual who is either dressing in a way that they feel is Jewish or um, is not? Um, and what is the impact on the broader community, um, both the Jewish community and, and the larger community on the presence or the absence of these kinds of visual cues of Jewishness? So that's what I want to think about together today. Um, and just how we're going to do the, that, that in a really um, clear, structured way is that we're first going to look at a couple of texts that do want Jews to be visually distinct and try to interrogate what are the reasons and values that each text wants that. And then we're going to look at texts that actually want Jews to blend in and think about the various reasons and values behind wanting that. Does that sound good as a plan? Any sort of clarif clarification questions? Um, anything you need to know at this point to be able to go forward? Everybody feeling good? Okay, great. So before we dive into the text, I want to just draw out a little bit of the experience and wisdom that is already in the room. I know that's a little bit hard to do on Zoom, and I know a lot of people will join us later um, by, by watching the recording, but I'm going to put a question in the chat, um, and I'd love for people to respond in the chat. Um, and the question is this, what aspects of your identity, whether it's class, gender, your political views, your culture, your hobbies, also, of course, your Jewishness, could a stranger know about you based on choices you're making about how you look? When you walk down the street and I see Marianne walking down the street or I see Michael walking down the street, what will I know about your identity just by looking at you? Okay, yoga plants. I know you're on your way to the gym. There we go. They're coming through. Depends based on the activity I'm dressed for. Okay, I have purple hair and I wear jeans and a t-shirt. Maybe we could Draw from that, Lauren, does that tell me something about your politics or your, your social grouping? Skin color? Okay, great. Skin color is a great question. Although obviously we don't have a choice about how much melatonin is in our skin. We're not going to totally go, or melanin is in our skin. We're not going to go deep into that, but I'm, I'm interested in that, right? Some of us can choose to pass. Some of us can't, right? I can see that you are identifying as more masculine or more feminine, Jewish jewelry, a kippah. Maybe that says something about your relationship to Judaism or to Zionism, right? Maybe you're dressed in a way that looks more conservative. Okay. So lots of pieces, right? Struggling with class guilt, gender. Okay, great. So right already we're starting to see that. I know that when I walk down the street, people can tell that I'm white, that I am femme and female. Um, maybe some of them can read the code that I'm Jewish. Maybe not. Maybe there's something about my politics that comes through, right? My marital status. Okay. Lots of things. Okay. So now I want to zoom in on the Jewish question. And I'm going to ask you just a little bit more theoretically, if you're walking down the street or in a public space, do you want people to know that you're Jewish? Do you want people to know that you're Jewish? Why or why not? And while people are thinking about their answers, I'll say that anyone who follows me on Instagram, I asked this question to my followers and I got 
really fascinating answers. You could go check out there what other people said about why people do or don't want people to know they're Jewish walking down the street. No, because anti-Semitism. Yes. Okay. That comes a lot, up a lot. I don't want people to know because I don't feel safe. Okay. Yes. No, for my own security depends on my location. Any other kinds of thoughts about whether or not you want people to know you're Jewish and why? Okay. Whether or not I want to, I think I read as an Ashkenazi Jew is very interesting. Again, we're going to try and separate out what are things that are about our bodies versus about our clothing choices. But that is something that comes up for some of us who maybe look more stereotypically. Um, Star of David, I want people to notice it. Right. Okay. So these are some of the questions in the background, right? Sometimes yes, because I, because no reason to hide my identity when other people don't have the choice to hide theirs. Great. Fascinating. We're going to get into that. Okay. So a lot of this is in the background as we look at these texts. Sometimes we think of these as modern issues. I think Jews in many different times and places have struggled with these questions of, um, do I want people to know I'm Jewish? Is it safe for people to know I'm Jewish? Um, how does it impact my own sense of pride or identity if people know I'm Jewish? Okay. A lot of this is great. Okay. We're we getting a few more answers. Uh, I live in a neighborhood with many Muslims. Okay. So how does the relationship between your community and the communities that surround you impact your answer to this question? Right. Does that, I, I don't know, right. Whether you mean I live in a relationship with a neighborhood with lots of religious people. So I want to be proud and display my religion or whether you mean there are tensions between my community. And so it makes it harder, right. All this in the background. Great. So with all that floating in our minds, let's jump into the text. Um, I'm not going to share my screen because I want to continue to be able to see your beautiful faces. So I am putting a link in the chat to the sources. I'm going to ask you to click on that link and open up the sources and we are going to jump into them. So we're going to start with a series of texts that think that it is a Jewish value or maybe even imperative to be visually distinct as a Jew. So all of the texts we're going to start with agree that Jews should be visually distinct, but I do not think they agree on the why behind that. So as we're reading these texts, what I want you to think about is why, right? What are the reasons or values behind each of these texts desire for Jews to look physically distinct from their non-Jewish neighbors? Does that make sense? Sound good? Okay. Is someone willing to read text number one here from the Mishnah Torah in English going to make Josh... Lippman, come off mute and read the first text here for us. We may not follow the practices of the non-Jews or resemble them in their style of dress, hair, or the like, as Leviticus 20.23 states, do not follow the statutes of the nation that I am driving out before you, as Leviticus 18.13 states, do not follow their statutes, as Deuteronomy 12.30 states, be careful lest you inquire after them. All these verses share a single theme, they warn us not to try to resemble the Gentiles. Instead, the Jews should be separate from them and distinct in their dress and in their deeds as they are in their ideals and character traits. In this context, Leviticus 20.26 20, states, I have separated you from the nations to be mine. Thus, one may not wear garment, which is unique to them, or grow the tresses of one's hair as they do. Okay, great. So this text jumps off from an assumption that we may or may not share that there are differences in values and character traits between Jews and the non-Jews that surround them, right? That there's some problems with the surrounding culture. And we could think about what that means in our time and place and whether that is an assumption that holds true for us. But let's just imagine that you've got a Jewish community living among a larger community of people who are not Jewish and that the perspective of this text is that there are moral problems with the broader culture. So based on that and jumping off from a number of biblical verses that seem to also speak to that kind of situation, the Mishnah Torah, the Rambam is saying, 
uh, right? His takeaway here is the last sentence. You should not wear a garment which is unique to them. Um, and I just want to clarify, he's being very specific here, right? This doesn't mean that we can't have any clothes that are similar to our neighbor's clothes, right? The problem here is not they wear blue jeans, therefore thou shalt not wear blue jeans, right? The problem here is if they have particular kinds of clothing or even hairstyles that are markers of identity for them, we ought not adopt those, right? So I would like to think, if I want to think about a non-Jewish group that I think is morally problematic, that has a particular clothing style or presentation style that is a marker of identity for them, I would think of neo-Nazis, skins, heads, right? And the ways in which they shave their heads. And so maybe you would say, because that is an identity marker for skinheads, Jews should not shave their heads in that way, right? Or we could think of different examples. One example that comes up a lot in the classical literature that builds off this text is academic robes. So it becomes a really interesting question because academic robes are not just everyday clothing. They are specific symbolic clothing, which emerge historically from the Christian church. And so depending on how a particular author or community thinks about that, maybe there's a problem in wearing academic robes. So that's something that some texts struggle with, right? But the idea here is not to wear particular clothing that is a, an identity marker for groups that we find sort of morally problematic. So anyone have any other thoughts about kind of what are the underlying values or what this text is trying to accomplish here? <laughs> Regalia is expensive. <laughs> yeah, so true. Any other thoughts? Okay, great. So we have here basically an idea of, it's not that we have to look different from them all the time. And it's not that we're trying to wear specific Jewish clothing. It's just that if they have particular clothing that is marking their identity and particularly identities that we don't feel included in or don't want to be included in, we should not adopt those. Okay. So that's the first one. Um, let's move on to text number two. This is uh, the Mahari, Middle, Middle Ages. And he is going to go into the question of head coverings. Um, somebody, Marianne, did you figure out how to come off mute? Can you read text two for us now? Okay. While we're working on this, Eddie is asking, is this also a way to stop assimilation? I think it depends what you mean by assimilation. I think that's a theme that is running through a lot of these texts. So we're going to come back to that. Okay. I'm going to read text two here. So the Mahari writes, we who live among the nations who go about with uncovered heads, and it, i.e. not covering, is considered like a practice of non-Jews, and we are only recognized among them by our head coverings. Therefore, not covering is now considered a violation of Jewish religion. Okay, so what's going on in this text? So the Mahari is working with a context in which he knows that wearing a head covering is not a biblical commandment. It does not say anywhere in the Torah, thou shalt wear a kippah right? It shows up in the Talmud as kind of like a nice practice that some people take on. Um, and then in the rabbinic period, it gets expanded as like, maybe you should have something on your head as a way to be kind of respectfully dressed for prayer. Um, and, and maybe you should have something on your head as a way to be just sort of respectfully dressed all the time. Um, but there, it sort of seems like that's because that's how people in these cultures generally dressed respectfully. Here, he's kind of trying retroactively to make the argument that covering your head is a biblical commandment because not covering your head would be sort of a violation of um, this, this idea of not dressing like the non-Jewish non community. So um, Eddie, I think to your question, this is where we start to see a sort of anti-assimilationist, right? It's not that going around with a bed, bare head is like associated with some particular non-Jewish practice that we find morally problematic. It's just that like, that's what they do. 
and that we want Jews to be visually distinct. We want to be able to tell walking around who's Jewish. And since they don't wear hats, we're going to wear hats, right? It's like that Dr. Seuss book, like they're the ones with the stars on their bellies. So we're the ones without the stars on our belly, right? It's not that there's anything morally problematic with not wearing hats or it's associated with some particular group. It's just like, we want to know who's us and who's them. And that is itself a, an important value. Okay. That's a little bit of a different take. Let's get another voice on the table. Um, Stag, Rabbi Stephen Belsky, would you read the the um, piece from the Vilna Gaon here for me? Um, unfortunately, I can't because my computer uh, crashed when I tried to. Whatever. I love you anyways. Thank you for being here. Alex, Thanks. can I, Alex, can you read number three, please? <laughs> Point me in the right direction. Yeah, this is the one that, um, that oh, at starts the, of the, the rule of the matter at the bottom of the first page. Exactly. The rule of the matter is that there is no prohibition at all in an uncovered head ever, except in the presence of great people and similarly in the time of prayer. The matter is correct from the perspective of ethical self-improvement and the rest of the day only. Holy ones who stand always before God cover their heads. Okay, great. So now this is a really different take, right? If the first two texts were sort of broadly anti-assimilationist and that the first one is like, we use our dress to separate from aspects of their culture that we feel are negative. And the second one was, we use our dress to separate just generally between us and them. This one says, head covering practices have nothing to do with marking out Jews it's for the simple reason that's not something that every Jew has to do or does all the time. It's a practice that's about me, right? It is an internal practice of ethical self-improvement. Um, or maybe it is a practice that's about relationships within the Jewish community. It's a way of showing respect if I am in the presence of a great Torah teacher or rabbi, right? But that's for me and my relationship with God or me and my relationship with other Jews. But it's not about anything having to do with identity vis-a-vis non-Jews. Okay, so that's a really different take, right? It's a one, take, take one, right? hats and head coverings as a way to separate from the bad parts of their culture. Take two hats and head coverings as a way to separate from them broadly and take three, like nothing to do with them for my own identity formation, for my own religious practice, for my relationships with my teachers, but totally internal facing. Great. So we've got those three voices on the table. Now I want to really zoom way forward in history um, to an amazing, amazing text that a friend of mine who is a historian found, um, which um, is basically a, a clip from a press release that the American Jewish Congress put out. Um, this date is actually phrased Israeli style. It was September 1967. And what you have to know about why they put out this press release is fascinating. So basically, the press release is in response to a bunch of Jewish parents who are freaking out because their sons, who are enrolled in public schools, want to go back to public school in the fall or have gone back to public school in the fall wearing a kippah when they previously did not do so. So can anyone make a guess why in the fall of 1967, all of a sudden young Jewish men want to start wearing kippot to their public schools? I'm seeing some smiles. Some Someone knows we're figuring this out. Yes. Okay. 1967, six day war. Great. So there are basically two theories about why this is happening. And I think they're both correct. The first one is the one that has been named here. This is immediately after the Six Day War. There's a huge surge in Jewish pride, right? Jewish pride as a movement um, associated uh, 
coming out of North America, coming out of um, North America specifically, and actually Israel, but especially out of North America, has been building for a number of years. But there's a huge spike um, during and after the 1967 Six Day War. Um, also, it's just the mid 60s in America. It's the mid 60s in New York, right? So ethnic pride, um, black pride, the idea of cultural distinctiveness is on the rise, right? This is the same period where black activists start wearing traditional African clothing. Um, so that's sort of dovetailing, right? Pride in Israel, pride in Jewishness, also in America, that is like sort of lifting up cultural distinctiveness in a new way than it did in the 50s. And all of that is coming together where you have a generation of Jewish children who want to wear kippot to their public high schools and a generation of Jewish parents who are terrified by this, right? And so the, the American Jewish Congress actually has to put out a press release in which they say the following thing. And they say, basically, don't stress Jewish parents. It's good that your sons want to wear a kippah. And it's good because it makes them more American. So it's just, let's just see what they say. The presence of a child wearing a skull cap could be a living and therefore most effective teaching of the concept of pluralistic democracy. There was a time not too long ago when we did not recognize cultural pluralism as a desirable characteristic of our society. On the contrary, we appeared committed to the direct opposite goal, homogeneity. This was particularly true in public schools. So they go on to say a fascinating thing, which is not, it's great that your kids want to wear a kippah because, you know, we love Jewish tradition and it's so great to connect to our Jewish heritage. They say, no, it's good that they're wearing kippah because that will be proof that America is a, is a, is a toss salad and not a melting pot. And we love cultural pluralism. And we're going to sort of send a message about the Jewish relationship to America by the wearing of this kippah. So that is a very different kind of reason to have a Jewish cultural dress, not because we want to be separate from America, but because we love America, because we want to be a part of a certain vision of America and that we're expressing that through our Jewish clothing. Let's see one more voice. This is a bit more modern. We're in, moving, moving forward to 2007. Um, this is a New York Times wedding announcement. So first of all, there's just already a whole story of how the New York Times wedding section started covering Jewish weddings and when it started covering Jewish weddings and all of that. But this is in 2007, the wedding announcement in the New York Times of Talia Milgram Elcott and Aaron Dorfman. And in that sort of style of the New York Times wedding article, when they go through like, how did the couple meet? They The article covers this couple's first date. And it says that Mr. Dorfman showed up to the first date wearing earrings and a yarmulke. <laughs> and he explained that he started wearing the skull cap. It's interesting the language that they're using, right? To While teaching a class on prejudice. His students pointed out that Jews can usually hide their minority status while African-Americans cannot. Jews can pass, he said, so I took away the option of passing. Okay, so just let's see what Aaron is doing here, right? He's saying, I had black students and they said to me, it's so nice that you think you're a minority, Aaron Dorfman, but you get to decide when people know that you are Jewish and when you just pass as a standard white American. I, as a black person, cannot pass, right? I am black all the time and you can't, you, you have that option and that's a privilege. And so he said that he chose as a non-Orthodox Jew to wear a kippah all the time in order to refuse to pass, right? Says, I want the discomfort and the beauty and the pride and all the things of being forced to be known as Jewish all the time in public. 
Okay. So that's again, a very different voice. So these are all voices that say Jews should use Jewish cultural practice to look distinctly Jewish, but maybe it's because we think their culture is bad, or maybe it's because we're actually trying to direct the public uh, culture. Maybe it's because we want to be different from them. And maybe it's because we actually want to share in the minority experience. Reactions to that, responses to that, you could put it in the chat or come off mute. I think his students are right. Say more. What do you mean? Well, he was kind of like a a cultural tourist in the diversity um, spectrum. And they were uh, willing or, or unwilling, they were always in it. Yeah, great. Thank you. Right. Um, right. There's the ability to make a choice. Um, we're getting a comment came in, in through the chat also about um queer queer identity and bisexuality, right? And the the ability to pass and not pass, right? A lot of this language of like passing and not passing um comes out of American race relations. And there's also great language coming out of the queer community, right? Closeted, not closeted, outness. Um, so I think there's, it's not always perfect to apply that language and metaphors to the American Jewish experience, but some of this is helpful, right? When are we outing ourselves? When are we passing? What can we learn from those experiences? Um, okay, great. So we've now seen a number of voices that say, yes, Jews should look different for a very different spectrum of reasons. Let's go look at the texts that say, no, Jews should blend in. They should not look different. Um, that we're going to see a whole spectrum of thinking here too, but very roughly, I want to separate these texts into two groups. There's going to be a group of texts, which I call the blending in for instrumental reasons. And there's going to be a group of texts, which I call blending in on principle. So what do I mean by that? The blending in instrumental texts are texts that say, in principle, I agree with the text we saw before. In principle, it would be better if it was always visually clear who was a Jew. But there are sometimes other values that override that or other needs that override that, right? Ideally, Jews should be visually distinct, but sometimes there are other more important things going on and so they should blend in. That's group one. Group two is going to say, no, on principle, Jews should be a part of the visual uh, culture of the surrounding community. Does it make sense, that distinction? Okay, so let's start with the instrumental text. Um, now we're going to get some really fun, wacky rabbinic texts, which is my happy place. And hopefully it's your happy place too, if you came to this class. Um, okay, Josh, can you read this first text here um, from the Talmud, Bava Kama, um, which is going to be about uh, non-Jewish haircuts. The one who cuts his hair in the fashion of Comey, this is considered one of the ways of the Amorites. The sages permit of Tolmos bar Reuben to cut his hair in a comey because he had close ties with the government. Okay, great. So first of all, what is a comey? I sure wish I knew. There is so much scholarship and we still don't know. Um, but it seems to be some kind of distinctly Greco-Roman hairstyle. And what we don't know is whether it is a hairstyle that is associated with some particular kind of uh, paganistic religious practice which would be one reason for why maybe Jews would want to avoid it. It's like a haircut associated with a particular spiritual practice that we want to distance ourselves from. It's also possible that it's not. It's just kind of like a high class Greek haircut, in which case it would be about sort of not wanting to participate fully in sort of the hegemonic power culture. Okay. But for whatever reason, Comey is, the default is that this is a forbidden haircut that Jews should not get a Comey sort of for the reasons that that, Ram, that the Rambam said, right? It's like 
participating in a part of the Greco-Roman culture that we think is negative, whether it's their religion or their power structures, something we want to, don't want to be a part of. There is this one guy of Tomos Bar-Ruvain, which already his name is very interesting, right? He is a Jew, the son of a Jew whose name is Ruvain, and his name is of Tomos, which is clearly a Greek name. He is allowed to, to cut his hair in this comi because of this idea of Karov the Mahud, because he's close to the government. Um, and this becomes a legal principle that there are some people who are Karov the Mahud, who are close to the government, who are allowed to do things that would otherwise be forbidden to Jews so that they can sort of get into the institutional power structures and work the political levers, right? So, um, you know, think about someone whose job it is to be uh, a lobbyist or to uh, interact with the government and probably a government that is much less friendly and democratic than um, the one we have now, but really to sort of be the Jewish voice in that space. And we would say, okay, in this case, you can sort of blend in in ways that we wouldn't want you to normally um, in order to be able to work those political levers. So we see a little bit more about how that worked in this next text, um, which is a story, um, but I think gives like a little more flesh to the bones of that. Okay. So the, the Talmud in Me'ilah tells the following story. The government, the Roman government issued a decree that Jews should not keep Shabbat, should not circumcise their sons, and should have sex with women who are menstruating. So it is probably not true that the Romans ever made such a law. But the idea here is that they made a law that strikes at the sort of core things that hold together Jewish life, that make Jews distinct from the Roman community, right? Shabbat, Brit Milah, um, and like even laws that strike at the most intimate parts of Jewish marriage, right? Um, so the, the Jewish community is being targeted by these laws that are meant to undermine their distinctness and their and their religious practice. Okay, so thereupon, Rav Ruvain, the son of Estroboli, such so as notice, it's the inversion of last time. He has a Jewish name, Ruvain, but his father is named Estroboli. So I, I kind of imagine that maybe he's someone who is like culturally competent in Greco-Roman culture, cuts his hair in a comi and goes and sits among them. And it seems like in this case, he's not just trying to like sort of make them comfortable as the Jewish representative. He's actually trying to pass. He's trying to pass as a non-Jew. And so he goes and he infiltrates the Roman Senate and he says as follows, if a man has an enemy, what does he wish for him to be poor or to be rich? And they said, they, he wishes that he will be poor. And so he said to them, if so, let them not work on Shabbat so that they will grow poor. And they said, he speaks rightly, let the decree be annulled. And it was indeed annulled. And then he continued, if one has an enemy, what does he wish for him to be weak or healthy? And they said, weak. So then let him, their children be circumcised at the age of eight days and they will be weak. And he says, they said, he speaks rightly and the decree was annulled. And finally, he said to them, if one has an enemy, what does he wish for them to multiply or to decrease? And they said to him that he decreases. If so, let them have no intercourse with menstruating women. And they said, he speaks rightly and let it be annulled. Okay, so this last one is also a great piece of data about lack of understanding about how human um, conception takes place in ancient texts. Um, but the, 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 the logic is the same in all three, right? He pretends to be a non-Jew. He pretends that he hates Jews. And he says, hey guys, since we hate them so much, let's make, you know, these laws actually are going to help them. We should make other laws that don't help them, right? 
we should make a lot, we should let them keep Shabbat because then they'll, they'll be set one seventh less productive, right? We should um, let them circumcise their sons because then their sons will be weaker. Um, so he basically infiltrates the power structure and, and uses this opportunity to pass as a non-Jew to try and protect the Jewish community. And that seems to be something that the text thinks is good or valorizes. And then we get this weird coda, which is that it didn't actually work. So the text says later, they came to know he was a Jew and they reinstituted all the decrees. And so, right, there's some sort of interesting coda here of like, does this even work, this passing thing? Um, and then we get an even weirder little coda, which is that after it doesn't work, the Jews then confirmed about who should go to Rome and work for the annulment of the degrees. So they're like, well, that didn't work. Let's try the same thing again. Okay, so here we have another voice. There's a lot we could say about this text, but another voice which imagines that we are in conflict with the non-Jewish surrounding culture, that it is persecuting us, that in um, the ideal, we would want no part of it but that at least some percentage of our community will need to partake in this sort of negative Greco-Roman culture in order to um, try and protect the rest of the Jewish community. So let's keep going into this next text, which has a similar kind of idea. So this is a text found in the Talmud in Tanit, um, and it imagines that um, a particular rabbi is wandering around in the marketplace and he often meets Eliyahu Hanabi, Elijah the prophet there. Okay, sure, great. So Rabbi Barokia ben Rabokia of Hosoa was all was often found in the marketplace of Belafet, and Eliyahu Hanabi, Elijah the prophet, would appear to him there. Once he said to Elijah, looking around this market of all the people here, is anybody going to happen? Is anyone here worthy to go to Olam Haba? Which is kind of a hilarious question, but he wants to know of his community who is getting to go to Olam Haba to heaven. Um, and Aliyahu has him said, uh, nope, nobody, you are all, you all suck. <laughs> In the meantime, Rabbi Barokia saw a man who was wearing black shoes and who did not wear tzitzit on his garment. Um, so this is interesting. This tzitzit, the, the fringes with the, with the blue, that's a Jewish dress practice that is commanded and goes all the way back to the Bible. Um, and, and the shoes I have, is, this is very bizarre, but it seems like at least in this place in Babylonia, um, Jews didn't wear uh, black shoes. I don't know why. And Eliyahu Anavi says to him, that guy, that go guy is going to Olam Haba. Um, and so the rabbi is surprised and he says, and he goes and asks the man, you know, like, why don't you have tzitzit? Why are you wearing these black shoes? Like why, 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 presumably the underlying question is why are you the one who's going to go to heaven? You're not even participating in our Jewish community and in our, in our cultural ways of dress. Um, and the answer is I come and go among the non-Jews and I dress this way. So they don't know that I'm a Jew. And when they issue a decree, I inform the sages and they pray for mercy and annul the decree. So this is a similar story with a different, a little bit of a different theory of change, which is that he's not trying to convince the non-Jews to, to subvert their persecution. Um, but he is just trying to find out about it in advance um, in order that the rabbis can find out about it in advance and sort of pray for the decree to be overturned. Um, there's also a parallel version of this story, which I didn't bring here, where instead of being kind of like a spy, um, he's a jailer. He's a jailer who works for the Romans. And he his answer is that he wears non-Jewish clothing so he can continue to be employed as a jailer by the Romans, which we might have thought is a bad thing. 
um, but that he wants to stay in place as a prison guard for the Romans because while he's in prison, he protects Jewish women from sexual harm, um, from being assaulted by the other prisoners. Um, so I think in both of those versions, we see again this idea that um, ideally a, a Jew should look like a Jew, but there are some moments where a Jew needs to pass to keep the Jewish community safe. Sort of makes sense. The question is, what about like less high stakes situations? So I want to bring this text from Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, who we're zooming forward a lot into modern American um, Jewish community. This um, is a, a question that he received and the answer he wrote in the 50s. Um, and the question is, is it permitted to take a job where you know you're going to have to be bareheaded in order to keep this job. Now, it's important to know that Rav Moshe is very, really values um, Jewish men covering their heads. Um, he is in the camp that it is actually maybe even a mitzvah to do so. Um, he has another really fascinating response where he says that they should continue to do so, even if they're um, doing things that he otherwise doesn't approve of, like going to social dances with women and men together. So he's really, he does this. I want to, you to know, he cares a lot about Jewish head covering, but he's going to go ahead and say um, that you, that you don't have to lose your job over it. We'll read what his, he writes, but like, let's just remember it's in the late 1950s. It's very common for there to be places where you really can't work um, or get a job with a kippah. I think maybe there are a few pockets like that now, maybe some white shoe law firms. Um, but this was very common. It might really be that you couldn't get a job. So what does he write? He says, Obviously, it is permitted because there's no obligation to lose your money over this, you know, good custom of covering your head. Um, and certainly it can't be more stringent than avoiding uh, a positive commandment, which we have a general principle that you don't have to lose a large amount of money for. So he he makes uh, a reference to this general legal principle that um, you don't have to lose a huge amount of money um, to not do a mitzvah, like to not do a positive commandment. Um, and so obviously you don't have to lose a huge amount of money to not cover your head um, because refusing to take a job, which would be a central source of income is, is a great financial loss. And even according to those people who think it actually is like a, a violation of this principle of not doing the non-Jewish practices, um, which would make it right a negative commandment. And you actually are supposed to lose money rather than violate a negative commandment. Besides the fact that I don't totally agree with him. His ruling is dependent on the place. And in this country, i.e. America, going without a hat is not an imitation of non-Jewish practices because non-Jews are not particular about this practice, right? He's, again, it's late 50s. We're getting close to the Kennedy era where he famously was the first um, president to uh, be do his swearing in without, without a hat on. Like, it's like, it's not such a big deal anymore, right? Um, and certainly in his place of work where they are particular about this, um, would be permitted to go about bareheaded um, but when someone is somewhere else, especially in public, it is prohibited to be bareheaded, even if other people will mock him since he will not lose a position or a job because of this. So he draws a really interesting line here, which is that he says, um, you don't have to lose a lot of money over your Jewish visual symbols of identity, but you do have to stand up to being mocked in public. So he's like, if you ask me, can I take off my kippah or my Star of Dave necklace because someone might mock me in public? Then I say to you, no, keep wearing them. If you ask me to do it because you might lose your job, okay, take them off. 
Okay. So just getting to the end of that section, right? We've now seen Jewish texts that think ideally Jews should look visually distinct. But if there's a question of the sort of the sort of persecution of the broader community or the safety of individual Jews or the loss of a job, then okay, we can sacrifice that for the more important other value here at play. Any questions or comments about that section? We're supposed to be strong enough not not to knuckle under to to um mockery or derision. Yeah, it's interesting, right? It's like a kind of calculation of like it is reasonable to expect you to stand up to mockery. It is not reasonable to expect you to stand up to the persecution of the government. It is reasonable to to stand up to sort of mockery in public. Um, but it's not reasonable to like lose your job over it. So, right. So Josh is asking a great question, which is like, how do you know, right? especially when it comes to like, are you going to be hired or not? Or are you going to advance in your workplace or not? It's very hard to know exactly what the distinction between like large financial loss and sort of being on the social outs with people would look like. Um, but that's sort of the calculation he's asking us to make. Okay. I want to just move, make sure that we see these last voices because there are a set of Jewish texts. Um, maybe less prominent, but I think important, that actually want us to blend in with the general culture on principle. This first quote that I brought here is from an academic work from Shia Cohen called The Beginnings of Jewishness. It's an amazing book. You should all read it. Um, he's a scholar of classical period of ancient Judaism, and he basically is reading the, the Greco-Roman texts, and he's noticing that none of the non-Jewish authors who write about Jews and about the Jewish community from the outside um, and also he looks at texts like um, the documents when so slaves are, are bought and sold and which include like a very detailed physical description. None of them, not a single extant ancient source comments on a distinctive size, look or haircut of the Jews. Nobody says Jews have this color of skin or they have this kind of body or this kind of nose or this kind of haircut, nothing. There's no comments at all, which implies they looked like everybody else, right? In Europe from the high middle ages until the early modern period, Jewish men were recognizable by their beards, but no ancient author comments on a Jewish beard. Apparently Jews looked normal. They did not wear distinctive clothing. No ancient author refers to a distinctively Jewish hat, which becomes a phenomenon in the middle ages in Europe um, or any other kind of distinctive Jewish clothing. Archeological finds show that the clothing is indistinguishable. Basically there's no evidence that you could look at a person in the ancient classical world and tell who's a, who's a Jew and who's not, right? Antiochian Jews looked like everybody else in Antioch. Alexandrian Jews looked like everybody else in Alexandria. So I bring this text just to say that we don't know why that was true, but we know that it was true that and is true that most Jews in most places in the world do not look visually distinct from their neighbors. And so just to like open up the question of like, maybe there's a value for those, for the Jews who, who dress like their neighbors in that. Maybe there's actually not just a thing that happens, but like an actual value. Um, and we could think about what that would be. Um, rabbinic texts don't always capture the full voices of what Jews and Jewish communities who are not, you know, Jewish individuals who are not rabbis writing rabbinic texts think. Um, and it might be that participating in the broader culture was a value for Alexandrian Jews, right? One rabbinic text where we do see this is from the Orthodox Jewish community of Germany in the 19th century. So this is from the response of Rabbi David Svi Hoffman. And he writes about the Jewish community of Frankfurt, which has a day school, basically, right? They have 
um, a thing that was very innovative at this time. This is sort of the, the moment in which this idea of a modern orthodoxy is being created. There's a school in which the boys study part of the day religious topics and part of the day um, secular topics. Um, and what he's going to tell us is that um, they had a practice of dressing differently for the religious topics than the secular topics. So here's what he says. Behold, in the holy God-fearing community of Frankfurt, in the school which was founded by the great Rabbi Shimshon Raphael Hirsch, the students sat at the time of their study of secular subjects with uncovered heads, and only at the time of Torah study did they cover their heads. And this was according to the decree of Rabbi Hirsch. So the practice was that the most of the time they dressed like the upstanding German young men that they were, and only when they went to study Torah did they put on some kind of hat as a way of sort of, I mean, I would imagine signaling to themselves, right? Like we're entering into Jewish practice right now, right? So it's not about what they want to walk down the street and be seen as Jews all the time. It's that when they are going into prayer or they're going into Jewish study, they say, now I'm in Jewish mode. I have sort of my Jewish hat that I put on to get into that mode. But then he tells a really fascinating story. He says, one time I came to the house of Rabbi Hirsch, who is his teacher. As you see, he respects him tremendously. And he was wearing a hat. And he said to myself that here it is the proper thing to remove my hat from my head as one does when one comes to see any important person. In other words, he's caught in a bit of a dilemma. An Orthodox rabbi is coming to see his teacher, another Orthodox rabbi. They are both people who are within the Jewish uh, language of clothing. And within that language of clothing, classically, a Jew covers his head specifically in the presence of a great teacher of Torah. That's how we traditionally show respect to teachers of Torah, by covering our heads in front of them. And he says, that's what I, my instinct as a Jew, going to see Rabbi Hirsch is that I should cover my head. But maybe because we're also both Germans, I should do the German way of showing respect and take off my hat to show respect to him. And he doesn't know like which cultural language to use basically. And then he adds something really interesting. He says, perhaps one of the other teachers will see, and I think by this, he means the sort of the non-Jewish secular studies teachers in the school, that I did not remove my hat from my head in front of the director of the school. And they would think that I disrespected him. In other words, he's making a choice. He's saying, I want to show respect to my teacher and I can either do it in a sort of coded Jewish way that only other Jews will be able to read, or I can do it in the broader German way that more people will be able to read. And the important thing is that I show the respect. And so I should do it in the most intelligible way. I should participate in the broader German culture of showing respect. So this is like a very different kind of voice that actually says, no, there's a Jewish value showing respect to our teachers, but we should do that in the way that is most intelligible in the culture that we live in, which in his case is taking off your hat rather than putting it on. Um, just to show that this kind of thinking is not um, you know, specific to the Orthodox world, I brought, um, there's an amazing uh, collection of reform responsa by the, the existence of reform responsa literature is in and of itself a fascinating topic for another day. Um, but the, the question here is, uh, come before a, a panel of reform rabbis is, is like, should reform rabbi, should reform congregants, um, wear kippot? And they sort of are going to give a little bit of the history of reform Jews and kippot. And they tell us that in the 19th century, the same period, and actually the same place also in Germany in the 19th century, um, re reform Jews, uh, st started uncovering their head during worship because this was seen as a sign of general politeness. Exactly the same argument um, that uh, 
uh, Rabbi David Zvi Hoffman makes is that when we go to synagogue, we should take off our hats because that's how Germans show politeness. Um, and they add something interesting. This was also intended to distinguish reformed Jews from the rest of Jewish community and became a symbol for this group. So this adds in a whole nother idea, which is that maybe we're using our Jewish clothing, not just to articulate who's Jewish and who's not Jewish, but also to articulate within the Jewish community, which subgroups we're in, right? We're reformed Jews. So we are bareheaded. We're ultra-Orthodox Jews. So we wear black hats. We're Israeli uh, religious nationalist Jews. So we wear uh, scarfy tichels, right? Like we're not just um, talking between ourselves and the non-Jewish world. We're also talking amongst ourselves. And so they say as a positive thing, we wanted to look like reformed Jews. So we took off our hats. However, this was only the practice of European reform congregations. And it, um, or this, sorry, this practice did not become um, followed by the European reform congregations and, and became standard only in the United States. And now the trend is in the other direction um, that we're going to start wearing kippot again as a symbol of being a part of the broader Jewish people, right? So in a period of time where the reform was sort of like a new and embattled subgroup, they needed a symbol of themselves as reformed Jews. Now that they are the largest thriving, um, most uh, most sort of popularly known uh, Jewish denomination in America, they like, okay, they don't need to look distinct anymore and they can sort of opt back into the symbol of Kal Yisrael. Um, and they say that explicitly, right? Especially appropriate because we're now well-established and we don't need an obvious symbol to distinguish us from the rest of the community. Um, so I think this is just a fascinating text about like, right, when do you need a sort of a particular symbol for your own subgroup within the Jewish community? And when actually do you want to opt into a symbol that makes you feel connected to, to the rest of the Jewish people? So just to sum up that last Third, right, we're seeing texts here that say, yes, Jews do want to blend in, whether it's because actually we want to take place in the part in the broader culture. There are good things about Greco-Roman culture and Jews of Alexandria want to be a part of it um, or because we want um, we want our sort of symbol symbolism and our communication to be intelligible to the people around us. And so if we want to communicate respect and politeness, we want to do it in a way that like other people will understand what we're doing. So we take off our hats, right? Or because actually um, this, you know, we want to be um, not separating ourselves off from the broader Jewish people, right? We want to be participating in something broader. But all of these are voices that say um, sometimes it's good to blend in. And sometimes that's actually a Jewish value. So I will pause there. We've got about six minutes to the end of our time. Does anyone have any questions or comments about that last section or about the whole the whole piece? Yes, indeed. Yeah, I um, and maybe I misheard you. I think when you were talking about Rabbi Soloveitchik, I think you quoted him as saying the custom of wearing a hat versus the halacha of wearing a hat. Uh, you talking about Moshe, Fein, Moshe, Fein, oh, Feinstein. Moshe Feinstein. Yeah, so we don't I, have we didn't have Soloveitchik. Yes, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, like I think most um, Jewish legal authorities generally assume that the covering of one's head is a custom. Um, and not a legal requirement, except insofar as maybe it's a legal requirement when you pray or when you study to dress respectfully to pray and study. Um, or maybe it's a legal requirement that has sort of evolved because of the reasons that we saw of like 
wanting to not participate in non-Jewish culture. Mm -hmm. um, so there is this machloket of whether there's sort of is a law here or a custom here. But Rav Moshe thinks it's a, a custom, but like a very important one, which is why he says that um, you should continue to cover your head, even if you're going to get mocked for it, because it's in a very important custom, but not at the cost of losing your job. Right. I also yeah. want to just add, my, my husband went to YU High School, and one of his rebellions used to say, boys, I expect you to behave, but if you're misbehaving on the subway, take your keeper off. Okay, so actually Rav Moshe would agree, would disagree with that. Um, he has, I mentioned this, he has an amazing chuba where he's asked if Orthodox Jewish men are going to scandalous mixed dances, which were happening in the 50s. <laughs> at young Israel synagogues, they're going and like waltzing, you know, um, yeah. <laughs> should they take off their kippot or not? And he says, no, just because they're doing one bad thing doesn't mean you should tell them to do a second bad thing. So uh -huh. <laughs> anyways, yeah, we, could, we could have a little mouth look at. Um, Anne, or did I see a hand over the screen here? Yeah, it's not Anne, it's Marty. Marty, sorry, Marty, come on in. Uh, area you didn't mention, which I find very interesting, is Hasidic sects dress uniquely for their own sect. So they're not trying to distinguish themselves from the non-Jewish world. They're trying to distinguish themselves within the Jewish world. Yes, great. So that last text from the reform movement actually spoke to that instinct, right? We wanted to have bare heads because we wanted to be, look, be visually identifiable as reformed Jews, we wanted to look different than, than Orthodox Jews. Um, but yes, you see this, for example, in the ultra Orthodox world, um, in general with the black hats and the suits. And you see it specifically in the Hasidic world where, um, not only are there certain ways of dressing that distinguish Hasidic Jews from other non-Hasidic ultra-Orthodox Jews, there are also many different little cues um, where if you're sort of in on the code, you can even know which rabbi a particular Hasidic Jew follows and which um, you know village in which part of Eastern Europe that rabbi came from. Um, so yeah, this language can get really complicated. Um, and, and often I think it's used not only to talk about the difference between Jews and non-Jews, but to talk about the differences within the Jewish community. And um, one of these real tensions is like, do I want to dress as a Jew and what would that even look like? Or do I want to dress as like the particular kind of Jew that I am and who can even read that code and, and what are they taking from it? But yes, the, we could have a whole set of amazing texts about like Hasidic directives about like what color of socks to wear. It really could get very fascinating. Yeah. Any other comments, questions? About married women covering their hair. Yeah, so this is a whole topic. I have a I have a six part series on hair. I'm very obsessed with it, but I guess I'll say in short that that's a great example. There are a lot of Jewish texts that imagine that married women should cover their hair because their hair otherwise would be sort of sexually provocative to men. But there are many other texts that imagine that the way in which married women cover their hair is a, is a form of communication, communicating their marital status. Um, so that is also a part of this language. Like, do you want it to be obvious visually as soon as someone looks at you that you are a married woman? And if so, what's that about? So we could, you know, again, come for the semester long version, but absolutely that is a piece of this story as well. Okay. Last question, Rabbi Stephen Bowski. Um, I was just wondering, cause I, I don't think I've seen, um, the response from Rav Moshe Feinstein that you mentioned, um, about the, 
men wearing their yarmulkes when they go to mix dance. I'll send it to you. It's so funny. Yes, but yes. Okay, but I'm wondering if there could be a difference between them doing that at a synagogue dance in a Jewish context versus the teenagers on the subway. Totally. It's such an interesting question. He doesn't specifically call out in the tshuva that the dances are happening at Young Israel, but I've been told by various scholars that that's probably what is is being discussed. But he uses very derogatory language for it. He's like, they're going to do this like kritsu, like they're going to do this like really bad, sexually inappropriate thing talking about these mixed dances. And even so, like they should still wear their kippah. So anyways, I'll send it to you. I'm interested in your thoughts. Um, Thanks. Uh, okay. I we're at time. So I will just wrap up by saying this is just like the surface of a whole interesting world of this like complex language of Jewish clothing. Um, so I hope I got you interested in it. You can join me in my obsession, um, and maybe gave you some new ways to think about Jewish clothing, but more importantly, I hope I gave you some new ways of thinking about identity and community, um, and about how your identity and how your community are formed and how they're articulated. Um, and I, and I hope you'll continue to chew on like what it means for you, for other people to see you in your identities as a Jew and in other parts of your life and what it is you want to be sort of, um, communicating and projecting out about your own Jewishness to the broader world, uh, and to other Jews. Um, and I hope you'll continue to think about that, uh, and feel free, please, to be in touch with me. I put my email on the source sheet. Um, So if you have any questions, uh, I hope I'll hear from you. And thank you to Alex um, and to Rav Shmuley for the amazing thing that you're putting together here. Thank you so much, Rav. Thank you. Thank you very much. Everybody. Thank you for joining us. And uh, we have another class next week. Uh, we will be joined by Dr. Mark Nanos for Why Should Jews Care About a New Interpretation of the Christian Apostle Paul? Um, mm-hmm. that'll be on- <laughs> Hi, Cher. <laughs> well, I want to know. Sounds great. Join us February 15th, 1 p.m. Mountain Time. Uh, hope to see you all then. And thanks for being here today. Have a good day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Bait Midrash podcast. Remember, that you can join our email list at valleybaitmadrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybaitmadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.